1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, our guest is Benjamin Koget. Ben is a partner and head of investor relations for HJH Investments, which protects and then grows investor capital through commercial real estate syndications. The investments include industrial buildings, shopping centers, and office buildings, which are typically anchored by high credit tenants with long-term leases throughout the U.S. HJH has over $350 million in assets under management. Ben is passionate about educating investors about passive income investing and has written an ebook called Five Things to Consider When Investing in Commercial Real Estate Syndications. Ben is based in Austin, Texas and has an MBA and CCIM certification. We talk to Ben about his passion for commercial real estate, why he loves to teach people about investing in real estate, and he dives into his four cash rules. We also get in-depth into the asset classes of commercial real estate that he and his company offer investors. And how the changes in consumer behavior have shaped the landscape, but not in the way that has caused many to fear certain sectors like retail. There's a lot to learn about diversification of real estate for a personal portfolio, how to win deals in a challenging market, and why commercial real estate continues to be an important asset class for any investor's portfolio. Ben, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Adapia. It's an honor to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited for our conversation today. It's been, you know, it's mid June. So we're midway through 2021. How that happened, no one knows. But we were just saying how, you know, at Alpha, we've been so busy with back to back deals all year. And I know that you've been really busy in what you do back to back all year. And I just really wanted this conversation to be about not about like your background, how you got into it. You're super passionate about real estate investing and, and like educating people as are we, and just like a nice conversation about the asset classes that you're working in, what you're seeing, what we've been seeing. And, you know, maybe we can gaze into a little crystal ball for the second half of of 2021 at some point.
2: I'm in. Let's talk. This is great.
1: (laughs) Perfect. All right. Well, how about let's just start with how, you know, we know what you do at HJH and you've been doing it for a while, super successful capital raiser, but how'd you get into commercial real estate and how did you specifically get into, you know, being a capital raiser?
2: Sure. Yeah. Got into commercial real estate back in 2005. First as a commercial real estate broker, went and got my CCIM and was really inspired by some mentors of mine. So I've always believed that it's better to copy genius than create mediocrity. And so I have made it a point to surround myself with people who are further down in their career, who are successful. And I've always looked for ways to to learn from them and uh, this is before you know podcasting and social media was a thing and, and I was just doing it in real life just very aggressively trying to connect with people who were successful and, and learned learn as much as I could from them and so they they guided me down the path of you know getting my CCIM and then I got my MBA back in 2011 and, uh, you know, surrounded myself, went to work for a, a family office here in Austin, Texas, handling a, a very large portfolio, a variety of different types of assets. And then uh, it, it was my time, I, you know, to, to follow my, my dream, which was to, to be an entrepreneur. And so back in 2015, I started a, a brokerage company, a development company, and uh, started personally investing in commercial real estate and uh, learned that uh, development was not for me. It is a rough uh, a rough business, and so that's okay. We, we survived that, but realized, okay, that's not for me. And really it was, uh, what I learned was the benefits of cash flow and predictable cash flows and unit economics of the fundamentals of the tenants that occupy the real estate that we like to acquire. And once I, once I really understood that, I started actually as an investor with HGH back in 2017 and built a relationship with the CEO, a guy named Corey Harkle Road. And you know, after chatting with him and he started the company and after chatting with him for about a year, he made me an offer. I couldn't refuse to, to join the company as uh, head of the raising capital and investor relations and, and that sort. And uh, yeah, it's been the, the best thing I've ever done.
1: Wow. So when you started working at the family office, did you, cause you got your CCIM. So actually let me back up and ask just to, for clarification, what is a CCIM?
2: CCIM is a, it's a commercial real estate designation. It's a series of educational courses. They, okay. they, they call it the MBA of commercial real estate and it's, it's very technical and, and it was really a, a good education for me early on in my career.
1: Oh, got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So like you go into family office, which some people know we we work with some family offices as well, but a lot don't, I mean, the way that they invest is so different than the way maybe a professional invests or or I invest and they have access to different kinds of opportunities. So what was it about real estate for you that, you know, you just really locked in on that?
2: You know, I think that the scalability of it was really attractive to me that the inflation hedge, the, that it's an alternative asset as opposed to going in the stock market, you know, that it's historically mm-hmm. continued to appreciate in value. And, you know, there's always going to be dips here and there, but frankly, that's still held to be true. And I don't see any reason why that won't continue. And uh, yeah, it's it's something that has allowed me to, you know, never stop learning about. So yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And you're you're both never stop learning. So the, you know, zen mind, beginner's mind comes up for me when when you say that. It's a fabulous book, but it's also just a mindset and you also love to teach. So let's talk about there's, there's, there's something that I know you wanted to share with us. And then you wrote an ebook that we'll link to in the show notes for people, but tell us a little bit about the teaching part, why that's so important to you and also how that's um, helped you do what you do.
2: Yeah. Frankly, before I started raising capital and teaching people about commercial real estate and passive income and our niche, I didn't know that I enjoy teaching. So now I know that I enjoy teaching. It's become a passion of mine, just the, you know, it's biblical for, you know, for it's better to teach a man to fish than to give a man a fish. Right. And so that, that sits with me and my turns out my dad is a teacher. He is a dentist, but has now since moved on from dentistry to teach dentists. And he's actually gone back to school to become an architect. That's a whole other story. But uh, it's just personally rewarding to see people grow in their own personal journey and to be able to help them reach their financial goals, probably sooner rather than later. And so I know you enjoy teaching as well. And it's 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 honestly in my career is the better than anything I could have ever dreamed up. That I get to help people reach their goals, and 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 so all of these things are you know building up together and it's, I'm just having the time of my life right now.
1: You can, you can tell, um, there's a huge smile on your face. I know a lot of people will be listening, but you know, it's true. There's a, there's a lot, we talk about this a lot of with like helping people reach their goals and helping them understand the role of commercial real estate in a portfolio. And I often talk about how I got my start working in a bank. When I was 18, I was on, you know, financial planner path and, you know, we don't, learn, not even securities courses today, really talk about real estate outside of like two pages in the manual about a REIT. So when I discovered real estate, which was a lot later, it was, it was shocking. And at the same time, one of those things where it's never too late to, to get into it, I've found. So I don't know what you think about that, but it's, it's definitely, you know, it's such an important thing and it excites me. It excites us at Alpha too, to, to just like you get there so much faster <laughs> with your goals.
2: Absolutely. It's never too late to learn. And so, you know, to that point, I decided to write that short ebook. And so, maybe I'll share a little bit about that. Um, one of the things that people kind of get their eyes open about is the four rules of cash. Have you heard of it? So, have you ever heard of Solomon's Four Rules of Cash?
1: I have not.
2: Okay. So, it, it's uh, it's in my ebook, slash book. It's free. Go check it out. Uh, it's real short. But the four rules of cash, they sound really simple, but there's some depth to it. And, and that's what I like about simple lessons. And so, rule number one, is more cash is better than less cash? Okay, easy enough. Yeah. Uh, cash sooner is better than cash later. Right? Now, rule number three: less risky cash is better than risky cash. And rule number four, drum roll, never run out of cash. Yeah, so sorry. I, you know, we, we talk, we go into a little bit more depth on what those rules mean and and how to balance those out when you're looking at different alternative investments. And so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of share with you some of those rules. What do you think about those?
1: I'm thinking about them and I'm like, yeah, makes sense. And at the same time, I'm thinking how hard it is to have cash on hand consistently, whether it's because it burns a hole in your pocket because you want to put it to work and you don't want cash drag, whether it's you're waiting for, let's say, a liquidity event or you haven't built up enough of a portfolio where you're getting, you know, whether it's dividends or distributions. And so it's really logical. And yet it's very challenging is what comes through for me.
2: Nice. Yeah, that's that's right. And, And they all have different consequences to the, your investment thesis as you're moving forward. Uh, would you rather have cash now or cash later? Why? What's, what, is the, what are the pros and cons to making your decisions based on these types of rules? And so, yeah, there you have it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, especially now, right? Like we were talking about all these deals and I know like Dan wants to j- jump in and talk about deals so and, and asset classes. So I think we should just dive in because let's let's put that cash to work.
0: Well, I was I was gonna say before that for me personally, it's this like kind of funny story, which is com- or funny setup, which is completely irrational, which is like I really want liquidity at all times to get really excited when I have that liquidity event. But then immediately my brain turns to how do I get all of this cash somewhere else as quickly as possible? And then like you're just in this internal conflict about how you feel about it in perpetuity. And so yeah, quick insight into how my my brain works but admittedly not rational
2: fair enough fair enough well at least you know that about yourself and that's a that's a good step
0: yeah right that, that's very true realization is, is step one so let's let's transition now and talk about investing Ben. maybe you just want to chat a little bit about the different asset classes deal types you're interested you know why they think why you think they make sense et cetera, and then we can kind of go from there
2: Sure. So at HGH Investments, we coincidentally just closed on our 59th acquisition last week. And so our niche is buying shopping centers, office buildings, or industrial properties. So those are the only three property types that we acquire. And what they all have in common is at least 30% of the tenancy is triple B credit or higher. With more than five years of term remaining on the leases and we have to acquire it better than a nine cap. So, in other words, high credit tenants long term leases better than a nine cap if it if it if it checks those boxes, then we make an offer on it, we do research every day with our acquisitions team looking at between 800 and 1500 deals every week. Out of that, about 16 properties will fit in our criteria. And out of that, we'll be able to, we'll make three to five offers a week on different deals and two out of three deals that we put under contract will pass our due diligence process. So it's been very, it's a, it's a large, large funnel that we are very, very, very specific about what we're looking for, Uh, kind of a needle in a haystack kind of situation. And uh, yeah, it's that's our formula, and we're sticking to it.
0: And how have you seen, you know, the the portfolio change, or, or what have you been seeing? You know, I guess since COVID, but then, you know, I think in our world, in this real estate world, things have seemed to shift a little bit in in 2021. The mindset's a little bit different than it was, you know, on the the back end of 2020. Uh, I would love to get your thoughts on that.
2: So, sure. So the three different asset classes, the, e- the easy answer is we haven't been able to find any industrial properties. So the industrial uh, market has been extremely uh, competitive. We have been buying uh, retail and office. Office in particular has been uh, fantastic for us. We've been able to pick up suburban office buildings throughout the Midwest that uh, again, they're occupied by high credit tenants with long-term leases. And we found that there were many owners who were motivated to sell in the pandemic because some people think that, you know, office people are never coming back to the office. Well, that's, that's not what we think whatsoever. In fact, we're seeing the opposite people are coming back to the office. We are signing new leases. We are buying also medical office buildings, which have had no, hardly any issues whatsoever throughout COVID. And so, you know, we, we, are, we struck while the iron is hot. We found people who were motivated oftentimes for reasons that were unrelated to the actual asset that were looking to get rid of the property. And so that's, we're happy to buy it. We're, we're long-term owners, long-term investors. And so we understand that there's gonna be cycles in the office market. Uh, and as long as we buy it right, the right price per square foot, the right locations, the right tenancy, then we're going to be just fine. And, and it's proven to be correct. And so there's that. And then the retail, you know, there's some people out there that think that retail's dead, right? Amazon and this and that. Well, the secret's out about Amazon. I mean, we all know that there's online, you know, retail and, and e-commerce and all that good stuff. Well, what's happening is that shopping centers, frankly, have pivoted and transformed in the way that they that they look like for example 10 years ago you know shopping centers would be a place where you go shop and, and by the way i'm not talking about malls and closed malls that's a different category so grocery so we, we just bought a grocery anchored shopping center we we believe that yes there is going to be a grocery stores that sell online and deliver and all that i think a lot of it frankly is you order it online you can pick it up and keep moving on with your day but then like the shopping centers are You know restaurants and medical and bars and you know service oriented businesses that frankly cannot be moved to e-commerce and so we have diligently looked for opportunities like that where you know it's if we can buy it better than a nine cap then we're gonna you know go through the dd process and then eventually raise the capital for it
0: so if you're buying it better than nine caps which is a number that you know, when I hear it seems very high to me, not just because in real estate, it's very high, but even within that asset class, is it because you're finding distressed deals, you know, like the, the grocery anchored retail, the medical office, industrial, you know, as you mentioned, have all become so popular since COVID because you know they're resistant to the things that you have challenges with typically when you have a commercial property and, and tenants and, and service providers, right? And so, you know, given that, like are you seeing distress deals? Is it just that there are you think there are less people within, you know, the retail or suburban office class, even within the niche that you're operating with? Like how should we think about pricing in your space when you know our reference point for a lot of investors is is often multifamily?
2: Yeah. So you know, since we do research every day, we know exactly what what the right cap rate is. And and kind of like I alluded to the the cap rates we're getting are because the sellers are motivated. It's not because there's anything wrong with the properties. In fact, we do very we often do very little value add to the properties. They're mostly stabilized with certain exceptions. And so the way that you know what I can share with you is some of our strategies on winning deals that might be, you know, beneficial to you and your listeners. And so I'll just kind of fire them off real quick on how we've been able to to, to win deals. And so number one, if it's, if it's on the market, so we, we get a lot of deals off market directly because of our reputation, but let's just say it's on the market. We will make an offer on that asset within 24 hours of it hitting the market. So we are oftentimes the first offer a seller will will review. And so I don't know why there's probably some psychological reason for it, but more often than not, the first offer wins the deal. So that's a tip that anybody can use. Make the offer right away. That's number one. Number two, we're gonna go ahead and preemptively send them a list of references. So here's a list of everybody we've done business with. Call anybody on this list and they will tell you that we at HJH, we do what we say we're gonna do, right? Number three, we promise the seller or the broker, whoever we're talking with, that we will personally, physically be on site within two weeks of being under contract. So that requires a lot of travel. I just got back last week from quite a bit of travel in Detroit and Indiana, and that's a lot of hard work. And so when we go out to these secondary markets that are harder to get to, that kind of winnows, that narrows it down and makes us look a little bit better because we're promising them that we'll be there on site. And that's what we do. And and number four is just real simple. Do what you say you're gonna do at all times, integrity. And so I guess the, the bottom line takeaway message that I want people to know is make offers, make the offer. If the, if the, if they want, you know, a price down below here, but you're willing to pay a price, you know, lower or whatever it is, just make the offer and let them, you know, counter or, or or tell, you no or whatever they, however they respond, it doesn't matter. So make offers.
0: So at the point that you are making an offer. Have you gone through any level of of diligence or asset level evaluation or you're just making an offer and then if you get to that next step, that's when you're then jumping, you know, going through the process of evaluating the transaction?
2: So typically we will have reviewed a rent roll, at least the basics of it, whatever is in the offering memorandum. And we'll tell the seller, hey, listen, if this, if everything checks out the way your OM is, great, we'll do it at this price and these terms and we'll move forward. If, and then later on, we're going to dig into it. And if we find things that are discrepancies or anomalies, then we're going to have to cross that bridge when we get there. So really the, the clarity of the OM is super important so that we don't have to get to a situation where there's, you know, any modifications down the road. And normally there's not, but you know, we will tell them right up front, Hey, this is what we'll do. We're, we're going to do this deal. And that's what we do.
0: And so you said, I think earlier, you close two out of every three deals. Is it that you may, that you have under contract or that you're agreed on? Like, what what was that for?
2: Yeah. The point of that was that not every deal passes our DD process. In fact, uh, one out of the two deals we reviewed last week did not. We got on site and frankly, the deferred maintenance and the, and it was just not nearly as good looking as what they made it look like in the photos. And so we real swiftly said, hey, this isn't for us and we're we're moving on.
0: Got it. Yeah, it's a really interesting strategy, which is why I wanted to, to kind of better understand it and have you you articulate it, right? Because you know, you think about the process we typically follow where we're gonna go out, we're gonna visit the property and tour it like before we're we're putting in the offer, before we're going on the contract, right? And you know, if a deal does become marketed or you know, just that time gap allows the opportunity for a lot more people. To, to come in, but that's, you know, the way that it's, you know, historically been done in the space. And so that's how people do it. So it's interesting to hear how you guys are kind of getting around this problem that we're seeing right now, which is deals that are on the market are going at substantial premiums oftentimes to, you know, where people expect these assets to trade. And because of that, you know, deals look less interesting, you know, on, on paper. So yeah, really interesting that you guys were able to uh, kind of find a workaround for yourselves.
2: Yeah, it's uh, anybody can do it really, frankly, just get out there and make, you know, know what you're looking for. That's really what's super critical so that when you see it, you can swing for it. And, and, you know, hopefully the seller is motivated enough to go for a price that, that works for the, our business model, at least.
1: Yeah, it's Fantastic to hear. And it's also such a different asset class. Like, like Daniel said, a lot of people are used to multifamily. They might hear a little bit more invest in senior housing when, you know, when they work for, for alpha. And, you know, I just wanted to cover one thing really quickly because you mentioned, and I know I've been really curious about this is the grocery anchored retail and like all of these changes. Cause when you said Amazon, I thought industrial and you know, the, the grocery anchored, not the mall. Can you talk just a little bit more about that? So for people listening, they're understanding. Cause I know when I see retail, I still, it's like, it's like an, it's like a reflective. Oh, I don't know. That's retail. Like it, even being who I am knowing what I know, it's an interesting, just like a knee-jerk reaction. And so the only way to get around reflexive reactions is to be informed. So could you talk a little bit more about the retail space?
2: So I think looking at the unit economics, aka what are the widgets that are being sold and and looking at what is the trend line for those types of things. So one similar example would be Best Buy if you had asked me 10, 15 years ago, while Amazon was really, you know, and and e-commerce was on the up and up, I would have said Best Buy would be out of business by now, right? Because anything in the Best Buy store, you can buy online, literally everything. And so why are they, if you look at their stock price, it's super high. Why It's because they were smart enough to pivot in their business model. And what I mean by that, is you go in there and you'll see a Sony TV and a Vizio TV and a Samsung. And so all of those companies are basically renting space to put their TV on the wall, or there's like a mini Apple store inside of it, or there's a, even an aisle where there's Amazon products. And so they pivoted and now they have, you know, fantastic sites spread out around the country where people can go buy their product online and come pick it up in the store. And so we are seeing this time and time again with retail. Frankly, I think shopping centers should be rebranded to, you know, like, like, I don't know a service center or something like that, but service center has like a car connotation to it, but you know, except for grocery anchor, I mean, most people aren't really shopping. They're going to get their nails done. I mean, just drive around wherever your local city is and look at who are actually occupying the spaces of the retail shopping centers around you? And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, especially as well. I'm in California. I know. I know you're in Texas. We're about to be allowed outside again, and and like be actually able to like go and, and do these to kind of do that research. I think that's important for for people to to get a feel for it. You're you're right about what's you know what is in those spaces. I wanted to touch um, back on this because. Wasn't Amazon in a bidding for, was it JCPenney or somebody that was about to go? I think it was JCPenney that was in bankruptcy and there was talk about Amazon buying them and becoming the strategy that you mentioned about Best Buy, how they've basically become a retail Footprint distribution center. Do you know what happened with that or if that would have even been a good strategy for Amazon to have more of a physicalized uh, kind of retail presence?
2: You know, I I don't know that specifically, but I do know that, you know, they bought Whole Foods, for example, which is an Austin based company to expand their footprint. And if you, I don't know if you've been into a, a, a Whole Foods since Amazon bought it, but it looks very different. what whole foods look like prior to amazon's ownership of it also you'll see amazon to go which are you know smaller locations with their most popular items being sold and you know so those are those are popping up everywhere but really you know amazon and other e-commerce stores that that's not who shopping centers are are being threatened by hardly anymore i mean they're As long as it's a good location with foot traffic and outside of California, with all due respect, people are going out and about (laughs) and shopping and living their lives almost uh, normal as it was pre-pandemic. And so we we think that there's going to be almost an explosion of people who are really, really wanting to get out and try to get back to normal and, and catch up on all the things that didn't get to happen throughout the last, you know, let's call it 18 months or whatever. So yeah, some thoughts like that.
1: Yeah, that's great. I appreciate that. And so I wanted to to pivot again a little bit and talk about your personal, you know, real estate investing or portfolio. I mean, as professionals in the industry, a lot of our portfolio is a commercial real estate, but like what role does it play for you in your portfolio and, you know, how you plan it, especially on a, on a going forward basis. We know we have incoming inflation. It's already here. It's not incoming. It could potentially only get worse. How are you positioning your portfolio today? And, and how have you positioned it since you started investing in real estate?
2: So I, I think that diversification wins the game. So spreading my money out, frankly, I, I invest in every single HJH deal and so i am very diversified amongst all of our different assets i've invested uh in other people's commercial real estate deals i've also recently invested in non-real estate deals such as a consumer product good called it's skinny pasta which was a pasta alternative that a friend of mine was running is running that company and i had an opportunity to invest so i thought well, that'd be a fun way to diversify and, and i just enjoy the product so it's kind of fun and so i pr- frankly based on the, the the rules of cash i am looking for cash now is better than cash later and so what i mean by that if you're asking what is ben kogut's personally i'm looking for something that will pay me a dividend after right away the first month as opposed to some multifamily deals that i've seen you put money in now and the sponsor will go and fix up the property and they'll sell it, you know, two, three years from now, and then you'll get a pop and then some. And so that's great and all, not no problem with that. But for me personally, I'm looking to build my monthly passive income so that frankly I I've I've recently surpassed the point where the passive income I have coming in exceeds my personal expenses. And I know like for a lot of people that's, that's, that's the, Fantasy, that that's the goal, right? To have and so I, I'm there, I like, and now I'm just trying to push it. And you know, I, I have a number in my head that if I achieve that, you know, you gotta have a goal, right? So I'm looking for a monthly passive income that will far exceed the amount of money I could personally spend on a monthly basis. So
1: Yeah, that's a, a really good way. That's a really good way of looking at it in terms of the monthly income that exceeds your monthly expenses. I know for me, and it kind of references what Dan mentioned before about as cash comes in, you're like, Oh my God, I got to get rid of it. When I have cash coming in from my passive income in investments, I'm like, I'm like waiting to accumulate it a little bit more so I can invest in another syndication, at least at this point in my life. Right. It's like not exactly compounding but almost and that's how i tend to think about it as as well and which is why i like like a combination of like what what you do and what we do because in some ways from a diversification perspective for for me i try to balance out what what will have a bigger pop a little bit down the road and and what can have a more stable monthly cash flow so that i can constantly every year be investing and kind of creating a like a bond ladder but with real estate syndication, so that's that's another way that or at least that's one of the ways that I think about diversification within cash flowing real estate.
2: Anytime I have an opportunity to spend money on something fun like a car or a boat or Vacation or whatever, I I the thought that goes through my head is okay. Well, it's just going to slow me down from reaching my personal monthly cash flow, and oftentimes I've delayed many of the uh, projects and fun things that I want to, to spend money at just because it's just not the goal. My goal is basically two x, two and a half x what in in passive income coming in versus the amount that it, on average I spend on a monthly basis. So if it it, like, if I spend $10,000 a month, just, you know, between rent and car and life and all that, then I'm looking for $25,000 a month in passive income.
1: Got it. That's a really good, that's a good metric. That's a really good metric to think about. I'm thinking about, I'm going to have to calculate mine after it might take me a minute on the, on the podcast. So, so let's shift into this. Cause you mentioned something about like fun in your life and I I'm, I'm not a big spender. My husband has taught me a lot about feeling abundant by giving myself things that I like. Cause otherwise I really like, I really don't because I'm like a little squirrel and I, I want to put everything, everything away. But of course we're living a life and I you know you have kids, you have a family. And so let's like, talk a little bit about, you know, how you balance the, you know, the investor with a lifestyle and, and, and finding that balance within yourself and, and how that, that, that like basically how you do that for your life. And I know it's important to you. So would love to, to have you share that with everybody.
2: Yeah, that, that balance is uh, uh, very important to me. And just to clarify, I don't have any kids.
1: Oh, <laughs> it's okay.
2: Uh, I do have a girlfriend and we're, we're, we're going down that path, but we're not quite there yet. And, you know, for me, being able to take care of other people has really just been a, a very important value of mine that I've learned from my parents and grandparents and so i think that it also starts with within myself and so i know that if i have a healthy body i'll have a healthy mind if i have a healthy mind i'll be able to do healthy things to take care of other people and so i do spend a lot of time making sure that i am personally healthy both physically mentally spiritually and and, and all those kind of things and it's it's just it's a commitment it's a lifestyle and you know i i have recently learned to meditate and so that has really Help me get clarity on on balancing all the 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 things that pull in life and luckily I'm an energetic guy and I just like to have fun and you know I love what I do so it's uh it's a it's really just a real a pleasure life has just been really fantastic for me lately and I'm very grateful for that and I just think that if I you can help other people on their journey as well it's just uh it's a it's a gift and an honor and a privilege to be able to do that
1: Oh thank you for sharing that yeah I don't know why I thought you had. Thought you had kids you're all always like doing so much so much stuff but but I like I love hearing that and you know me you know I'm big on mindfulness and 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 meditation and, and finding that space to clear the mind and 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 live in a harmonious way I think balance can sometimes feel like static instead of it being something more harmonious right This like this idea that you know, things in balance are fluctuating back and forth. But if you were to ever stop, it's not the likelihood of it stopping on a flat line of balance is almost impossible. So it's like this going with the flow. I I digress into some like metaphysical things, but
2: no matter what, the most important thing is keep moving forward. Yes. And when it's important to let go of things, and we have things that have hurt us along the way, we have to learn how to let things go. So that, they, you know, we're not dragging them around with us like luggage and uh, just keep moving
1: forward. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's that, that flow and that movement. And so the, the, it leads really nicely, actually, thank you, into the last question that I would like to ask you, which is, what does wealth mean to you?
2: So the, the first thing that comes to mind would be health amongst my family and friends. Uh, the people that I love. So that that's, you know, the relationships, uh, the, that, that makes me feel wealthy. That's when I'm happy is that. And when I am able to be outdoors, mm. you know, having that, I had a pleasure, my dad and my brother and I got to go to Idaho sort of towards the beginning of the pandemic. And we spent six days off the grid floating down uh, a river a pristine river and so I was present and unplugged from social media and internet and blah, blah, blah. And uh, that was probably the first time I really felt present. If you know what I mean? Like to be there, my brain, I was not worried about any work or anything else going on out there. And so I think that's, that, those are probably the two most important things. I mean, if we talked about wealth from like a a financial standpoint, which is kind of like what I think most people you know, think about wealth, then, then from that standpoint, it's going to be a freedom. It's going to be being able to spend my time wherever and whenever I want. And that's, that's why I do what I do because the investing in commercial real estate, you know, pays monthly dividends and that ultimately allows me to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And I'm happy about that.
1: There it is. There it is. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing everything. Thanks for spending some time with us today. And it was really informative, really interesting. And we'll include um, links to the ebook for HJH. And if you want to just really quickly tell people where they can contact you um, if they'd like to get a hold of you.
2: Yeah, thanks so much. So, again, slash book. You can also reach me there or I'm on all the socials at Ben Kogut. Last name is spelled K O G U T. And I uh, look forward to connecting with everybody.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode and especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate.